The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. This time might be different. It's Thursday, February 22nd, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. At the start of last week, the Trump White House was self-absorbed, and with good reason. It had become clear to everyone the White House had allowed astounding lapses in security, had ignored wife-beating accusations against Trump's secretary, who lacked the security clearance to see the higher-than-top-secret papers he was seeing. There was a lot of talk that Trump might fire his chief of staff, John Kelly. Trump had been asking around about replacements. Two of Trump's cabinet members have been caught making luxury trips at taxpayers' expense. As the first couple prepared to travel to Florida for the weekend, a Playboy model claimed she, like Stormy Daniels, had an affair with Trump in the months surrounding his wife giving birth, apparently in the same bungalow at a hotel in Beverly Hills. The Trumps still went to Florida, but again traveled separately. The Trump motorcade between his estate and his golf club passed a strip club called Ultra, where Ms. Daniels would be performing in mid-April. The sign advertising her upcoming appearance reads, Stormy Daniels, making America horny again. And in that same terrible, horrible, no-good week for Trump, Robert Mueller's Russia investigation circled closer. The Washington Post quotes a White House official as saying, it was a distraction or a reprieve, end quote when 17 people were shot to death at a high school in Florida. White House officials saw it as a relief, something to break the focus on itself, even something as horrific as another school gun massacre. The source tells the Post they know this won't last. We all know, sadly, says the source, when the coverage dies down a little bit, we'll be back through the chaos. Quoting Republican strategist Michael Steele, the tragic events in Florida probably helped the White House by distracting from the awful wave of scandal. As distractions go, this one demands everyone's attention. The journalists and concerned citizens found they were able to follow both the issues surrounding a tragedy and the scandals. One scandal in particular, Russia, remained on the mind of Donald Trump, complete with highs and lows. Trump again felt vindicated by the Mueller indictments because they said nothing about him or his people. No collusion, he said again and again. He celebrated it. Trump had gone to Mar-a-Lago for a weekend of golf, but his advisors told him it wouldn't look good golfing while the bodies of high school students were being placed in the ground just 40 miles away. So Trump stayed indoors and watched cable news instead and stewed. By bedtime, he had stewed enough. America had just watched the funerals of the latest young people killed with a military-style assault rifle, and that night, Trump tweeted what was on his mind, the enclosing Russia investigation. At 11.30 p.m. that Saturday night, Trump unleashed a long Twitter storm that was astounding even for him. He immediately blamed Obama for not doing enough to stop the Russian interference that he's repeatedly called fake news. Now he says it's Russian interference, but it's Obama's fault. And Trump was forced to deny that he'd said he'd called it fake news, even though he's done it many times in many ways. In Trump's Twitter tirade, he called Congressman Adam Schiff a monster. Schiff is the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, which is investigating Trump-Russia connections. Trump tweeted that Russians are, quote, laughing their asses off at the trouble they've started. But Trump tweeted nothing about plans to retaliate. An astounded world now sees a U.S. president who won't stand up to Russia. 
Instead, he tweeted that Oprah is insecure. And this classic, quote, the Democrats, led by their fearless leader, crooked Hillary Clinton, lost the 2016 election. But wasn't I a great candidate? End quote. It might have been better if they'd let him play golf. Because Trump also again attacked the FBI, saying it should have focused on the Florida shooter instead of on the Russia investigation, as if the Bureau's hundreds of agents can only do one thing at a time. Trump's Saturday night Twitter storm also attacked his own national security advisor, who called the Russian interference evidence incontrovertible. Trump tweeted that H.R. McMaster forgot to say that the indictment showed that the election results were not impacted by Russia. McMaster did not forget to say that. He didn't say it because that wasn't in the indictments. And Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein made it clear when he announced those indictments that they did not allege that the interference had changed the election results, at least not in this round of indictments. So Trump stood about Rosenstein, too, reportedly complaining that his people weren't protecting him and that no one on his team had come to his defense. Trump's Twitter tantrum lasted from 11 p.m. that Saturday night to about noon on Sunday. And then on Sunday afternoon, Trump took the 45-minute ride from Mar-a-Lago to Parkland to focus on the latest school shooting. He apparently played golf on Monday as the funerals continued. There have been at least seven school shootings in the U.S. since the start of the new year. That's about one a week. It's more school shootings than many countries have ever had. The United States has more gun violence in its schools than in Australia, Canada, China, England, France, Germany, India, Israel, Italy, Japan, Kenya, Northern Ireland, the Russian Federation, Scotland, South Africa, and 20 other countries combined. 13 of those 35 countries have never had a school massacre, and half the shootings in the whole world take place here in the U.S. These are not figures from some liberal group. They're figures from the Academy for Critical Incident Analysis at a criminal justice college in New York. Since 2000, there have been 188 shootings at U.S. schools, including universities. More than 200 young people died in those shootings. That figure is as accurate as it can be since the NRA has opposed any effort to fund proper research on this topic. And by opposed, we mean the NRA paid politicians to keep it that way through fat campaign donations, including the $30 million it gave to Trump or the $3.3 million it gave to Florida's Marco Rubio. Worldwide, China runs second in mass killings with 10, but none of them involved guns. It's been nearly 10 years since there's been a mass shooting at a school in Europe. This is uniquely a U.S. problem. Because unlike any nation on earth, there are already enough guns out there to arm every man, woman, and baby in this country. We own at least 300 million guns, and our laws are much more lax than the gun laws in other countries where there is exponentially less gun violence. So what can be done to stop these gun massacres? The Washington Post looked at 29 proposals that have been floated by politicians and then hired a polling firm to run those ideas by a representative sample of American voters and a panel of experts made up of cops, social scientists, lawyers, and public health officials to see what they like and what they don't and which proposals are liked by both the experts and the people. Coming in at number one, requiring all sellers to background check everyone who buys a gun. Banning gun sales to terrorists, wife-beaters, stalkers, and people convicted of violent misdemeanors ran a close second, along with banning gun sales to people who've been deemed dangerous by mental health officials. 85% of us, including gun owners, 
like both of these ideas, both of which have been dismissed by lawmakers under the influence of the National Rifle Association, which can count less than 5% of all U.S. gun owners as its members. NRA-backed politicians are currently pushing to protect a person with a concealed carry permit in one state from the laws of a state they're visiting. The public hates that idea, and so do the experts. The first significant legislation passed by this Republican-controlled Congress and signed by Trump allowed the mentally ill to buy guns more easily, even though Republicans and Trump give mental illness as their explanation of our epidemic of mass shootings. The NRA had donated $30 million to Trump's campaign and has donated millions more to the leading Republicans in Congress, leading Trump to publicly pledge he would never, ever let down the NRA, his words. The NRA was invited to weigh in on this survey, but it declined. Until Tuesday, the NRA had remained silent, letting its money do the talking, including the $2.2 million it had given to schools in 30 states for shooting clubs, one of which included high school shooter Nicholas Cruz as a member. Other ideas liked by the vast majority of us requiring all owners to have licenses and to report lost or stolen guns. We nearly universally want childproof locks, waiting periods, mental health screenings for gun buyers, tougher penalties for those who buy guns illegally, requiring dealers to report all gun sales to the government and to keep records of those sales. Nearly 80% of us want gun owners to complete training and testing for their specific gun. Three in four of us favor a national buyback program in which illegal guns and ammo can be turned in without repercussion. Nearly that many of us want gun buyers to provide their fingerprints and background checks for ammunition buyers. A majority, nearly two-thirds of us, want a ban on assault weapons, automatics and semi-automatics, ID numbers on individual bullets, a ban on ammo magazines that hold more than 10 bullets, and a limit on the number of guns and the amount of ammo a person can buy in a given month. As Americans, whether we own guns or not, we can agree there's a lot we can do to curb gun violence. Now all the students need are elected officials to hear that, to agree with it, and to take action, and for the NRA to either lead, follow, or get out of the way. After the bloody gun massacre of elementary school children in Connecticut a little over five years ago, a lot of us believed things would change. They didn't. Things got worse. As six years of Republican leadership in Congress gave us looser gun laws, not tighter. So why would this time be different? Well, this time, the students who survived are old enough to speak for themselves passionately and eloquently. This time... They're old enough to be politically aware and politically active, and they're almost old enough to vote. They're not happy with the grown-ups who've argued about guns and violence but have done less than nothing to fix the problem. They are speaking and marching and confronting specific adults face-to-face on the news and on social media. They are masters of social media and broadcast media savvy. There will be several marches and demonstrations nationwide in the next few weeks. The students marched on their state capital of Tallahassee yesterday to form the biggest protest rally there in decades. At their rally, a survivor of Florida's Pulse nightclub shooting spoke, addressing lawmakers. He asked, After Sandy Hook, what did you do? Not a damn thing. After 49 people were murdered at Pulse, what did you do? Not a damn thing. And now we're here again. What did you do yesterday when given the chance? Not a damn thing. 
The students have been marching and speaking and walking out of their classes since the day after the gunfire. They're getting supports in states from coast to coast. Minneapolis students walked out of class and marched to City Hall. Students in Washington, D.C. swarmed the Capitol's Union Station. And outside the White House, students staged a die-in. And they are not letting go. They're focused on Trump and his $30 million from the NRA and his pledge to never disappoint the gunmakers lobby group. In Florida, scene of the latest young bloodshed, they've focused on their senator, Marco Rubio, and the $3.3 million he got from the NRA. In a televised town hall meeting last night, the teens asked Rubio if he would stop taking money from the NRA. Rubio refused to agree with that and, walking the NRA line, refused to back a ban on assault-style rifles. The students are also focused on Florida Governor Rick Scott for bragging that he had signed, quoting him, more pro-gun bills into law in one term than any governor in Florida history. The NRA gives Scott an A-plus as Scott himself prepares to run for the Senate. Wish him luck against an anti-NRA candidate who suddenly has so many young people handing out his flyers and manning his phones. Democrat incumbent Bill Nelson gets an F from the NRA, but an F from the NRA is exactly the grade these students and many voters are now looking for. After their classmates were shot, the high school students from Parkland, Florida, heard Governor Scott say it was too soon to talk about gun laws. These young adults do not agree. And in the immediate, they will keep the pressure on those who currently hold office to begin making changes now. The students have the support of adults and activist groups, many of whom have fought this battle for years against a seemingly more powerful NRA. They are now joined by their parents and their teachers. And they've gotten well over $2 million in donations for their organization thanks to supportive stars including George and Amal Clooney and Oprah. And the students have the American people. A new Quinnipiac poll shows that two-thirds of all voters want stricter gun laws, including precisely half of all gun owners. 50-year-old Carlos Rodriguez was on his way to work when he saw signs people were holding on a street corner that read more gun control. Carlos pulled over and joined them, saying, Look what we started. Look at all these people. One match, he said, started a whole forest fire. The organizers of the Women's March, the post-inaugural march that was the biggest in our nation's history, are backing a nationwide 17-minute student walkout. It's set for Wednesday, March 14th at 10 a.m. local time. That means there will be one walkout, for each time zone, for three times the media coverage. The March for Our Lives is planned for 10 days later, Saturday, March 24th in Washington, D.C. A surviving junior from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High is one of the organizers, and he has an answer for Governor Scott. Here's a time to talk about gun control, March 24th. My message to the people in office is you're either with us or against us. We are losing our lives while the adults are playing around. On the March for Our Lives website, yes, there's a website, politicians are called out, specifically Trump and the NRA, even though both parties promised change after Las Vegas and delivered none. The March for Our Lives website also features these words. Every kid in this country now goes to school wondering if this day might be their last. We live in fear. It doesn't have to be this way. Change is coming. The young voices will be heard. One of the most eloquent student speakers is Emma Gonzalez, and she's already being heard. After a video of her rally speech went viral, she was on the Sunday morning talk show saying, quote, Adults in power who are funded by the NRA 
They're going to be gone by the midterm election. There's barely any time for them to save their skins. And if they don't turn around right now and state their open support for this movement, they're going to be left behind because you're either with us or you're against us. 18-year-old Ryan Deitch will also be heard. He's also from Stoneman Douglas High, and he made the six-hour trip upstate to Tallahassee Tuesday to speak to the state legislature. He took busloads of other chaperone students with him. They split into teams to meet with specific lawmakers. The young voices are being heard. They were not deterred by hearing on their way to Tallahassee that Florida lawmakers had just voted not to consider banning assault weapons. Florida's lawmakers had instead passed a bill declaring pornography an official health risk. That bill rightly mentions the negative effect that porn can have on young people in terms of forming real-world relationships, and it rightly called for education. But in surveys of the top concerns of Americans, pornography doesn't even make the top 10. But Florida lawmakers chose that moment, a moment when their constituents are anxious about dying students to address porn and not guns. A solid two-thirds of U.S. voters support bans on assault weapons. Florida lawmakers under Republican control were focused on porn. 71 of them voted against banning assault weapons, nearly double the number voting for the ban. The names of those legislators and how they voted are on my Facebook and Twitter pages. Even a leading Republican governor, Ohio's John Kasich, said, the time is now for common sense gun laws. Would you feel as though your Second Amendment rights would be eroded, asked Kasich, because you couldn't buy a goddarn AR-15? He told CNN, action has to be taken. Also, on their bus ride to Tallahassee, the students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas heard that President Trump had ordered Attorney General Jeff Sessions to make a rule change to ban bump stocks. Those are the devices that turn a semi-automatic gun into an automatic weapon, like the guns used in the Las Vegas massacre last year. That order was issued on Tuesday. On Monday, Trump indicated he'd be open to some changes in the national background check system, and he called on lawmakers to focus on making background checks stronger. But the ATF got no notice or consultation about Trump's order and was taken by complete surprise, not knowing if it, as an agency, has the authority to act on that order without a similar order from Congress. In truth, all of this is up to Congress, not the executive branch. The White House had previously said it could not ban bump stocks, that it would call for a vote in Congress. And the NRA-backed Republican Congress has shown little interest in changing gun laws, but says it will consider a few proposals before the spring break next month. But those bills will likely also include allowing concealed carry in all 50 states and letting gun owners obey only the gun laws of their home state, even when traveling to states with stricter gun laws. These are the current top priorities of the tiny but wealthy NRA. This is their chance to get those bills through, riding on the coattails of what might appear to be gun law reform. But Republicans say the bills will not include a ban on assault rifles. After listening to grieving students and parents yesterday talk about the accessibility of assault weapons, Trump told the students he favored arming teachers. Had anyone been holding guns when the police SWAT teams burst into the school, the people with the guns would be the first to be shot. Teachers and the police hate Trump's idea. And there is skepticism about Trump's promises since he's already eased gun-buying restrictions on the mentally ill and narrowed the definition of fugitive from justice. The rule used to say a fugitive was anyone with an outstanding warrant. Under Trump, 
a person would have to flee from law enforcement across state lines to be considered a fugitive from justice. So that rule change now means that people wanted by the police can buy guns. What could possibly go wrong? But here in Florida, a major donor to Republicans is threatening to cut off the money to those who oppose a ban on assault weapons. 83-year-old real estate developer Al Hoffman Jr. also fired off an email to other big Republican donors, urging them to cut off the money as well. Quoting Hoffman, I will not write a check for anyone who does not propose a ban on assault-style weapons. Hoffman says he will now support candidates in either party who support the assault weapons ban. He's also sent an email to Florida Governor Rick Scott. So the young people were being heard. Inside Florida's capital, a 16-year-old watched as Republicans electronically voted down that assault weapons ban, and she told them, I saw you push those buttons. You pushed those buttons, and you killed people. She was being heard. So was 19-year-old senior Tyra Hemans, who held up a photo of her dead friend Joaquin Oliver. Here's a boy, she said, who got shot in the head because of your laws. And she demanded that the lawmakers look her in the eyes as she spoke those words. Elsewhere, quietly, Republicans were working with the Democrats of liberal Broward County to raise the age limit on buying semi-automatic weapons and to give police more power to confiscate guns from people the courts declare dangerous. Baby steps, but a shocking departure in a state whose laws, the most lax gun laws in the country, were written by the NRA, the tiny but wealthy and generous NRA. That includes Florida's highly controversial Stand Your Ground law. Suddenly, the state that didn't act after the mass killing at Orlando's Pulse nightclub seems ready to at least budge now. It's a shift that 10 days ago would have been unthinkable. It's thinkable now because these young adults are being heard. The acting mayor of Dallas is asking the NRA to hold its upcoming national convention somewhere else. Pro Tem Mayor Dwayne Carraway says he knows he can't order the NRA to stay away, especially with so many NRA members in the area. But he's worried about the optics and about the protests that may follow the NRA all the way from its headquarters in Virginia, just outside of D.C., The NRA says it's still holding its convention in Dallas. Right-wing bloggers, meanwhile, have attacked these articulate young people, accusing them of being actors. One's been accused of being an FBI agent, posing as a student. One right-wing conspiracy-laden website wrote that young David Hogg was, quote, heavily coached on lines and is merely reciting a script. Trump's son, Don Jr., was among the Twitter users who liked that conspiracy website's post. And since David's dad works for the FBI, the far-right fringe has accused David of working undercover in broad daylight. In Florida, a legislative aide, Ben Kelly, has been fired after he emailed a reporter to say this about Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg. Both kids in the picture are not students here, but actors who travel to various crises. Online, Kelly, who was once convicted of tax evasion, called Ms. Gonzalez, quote, brown, bald, lesbian girl. Florida's Republican House Speaker fired that legislative aide and made a public apology to the students. A best-selling author, meanwhile, former investigative journalist Carl Hyacin lives just a few miles south of the latest mass gun killing. Quoting him, this is going to energize people to vote this year. People, said Hyacin, are angry. 
The TSA says it confiscated more guns last week than it has in any week on record. We've broken the 100 guns a week barrier with a total last week of 104. The old record was set last July with 96. Of the 104 guns seized at our airports just in this country last week, 87 of those 104 guns were loaded. 37 of them had rounds in the firing chamber. The TSA also seized two pounds of gunpowder and a collection of ammunition, gun parts, gun replicas, BB pellet, and airsoft guns. The United States Supreme Court this week refused to strike down California's 10-day waiting period for buying a gun. California is one of eight states that require some kind of waiting period. 42 states do not. Yet. It's been a busy week for guys named Bob, from Bob Muller to Bob Seska. Their stories and more after this. Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do, so it's very important to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. If your Amazon dollars already go to another show, you can still support this free newscast through the PayPal donate button just below the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. America's young people are not just targets for high-capacity, rapid-fire guns. Young people have long been targets of a certain style of politics. Here's Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Trump Republicans have much to answer for. On top of electing this incompetent, misinformed Russian agent, Donald Trump, to the presidency, saddling us all with the responsibility of containing, then cleaning up the decades' worth of mess he's making— Loyalists to the president are engaged in yet another jihad against children. In this case, they're questioning the veracity and origins of student activists who watched 17 of their classmates shot and killed in Parkland, Florida. Their bodies invaded by round after round of ammunition, purchased legally and fired by a 19-year-old boy with ties to a white supremacist group in Florida. It's the 18th school shooting this year alone. I think we all know who we're talking about here. There's convicted campaign finance criminal Dinesh D'Souza. There's the gateway pundit Jim Hoft and the conspiracy theory videos posted on True Pundit, retweeted by Donald Trump Jr., by the way. There's former Republican congressman and frequent Bill Maher guest Jack Kingston. There's escaped mental patient Alan West. And, of course, there's Alex Jones, who still believes Sandy Hook was a hoax. They're all Trump supporters, of course, but this far-right obsession with targeting children and other non-combatants, anyone who isn't part of the national political debate, began long before Trump descended the escalator in Trump Tower to announce his candidacy. In order to trace this phenomenon, we have no choice but to start with the GOP's unforgivable doxing and smearing of a slain teenager named Trayvon Martin. For months, Fox News and the conservative entertainment complex dissected everything about Trayvon, labeling him a street thug who had it coming with his sinister hoodie and his, you know, skittles. Geraldo Rivera thought Trayvon's clothing might have invited the shooting. Rush Limbaugh and others tried in earnest to connect Trayvon to the Black Panthers via, strangely enough, President Obama. Matt Drudge posted sensationalistic headlines about Trayvon's past while illustrating the links with a grills photo of Trayvon, which was obviously meant to feed anti-black gangsta stereotypes. Tucker Carlson's The Daily Caller released what are purported to be Trayvon's incendiary tweets. Glenn Beck's The Blaze posted an entire list of infractions Trayvon might have committed at his high school. 
the absurd notion that somehow Trayvon's unsubstantiated record might somehow justify George Zimmerman's actions are totally indicative of the kind of knee-jerk bullying and racial dog whistles we've observed from these people on countless occasions. And, by the way, it's this kind of behavior that was weaponized and sold as modern presidential, quote-unquote, by Donald Trump and his co-conspirators. While Trayvon was the first deceased child to be attacked by the Republican establishment in recent memory, he wasn't the first non-combatant to face the wrath of the GOP, a party that seems to think life begins at conception and ends at birth. Sandra Fluck, whose reputation was assassinated in the right-wing media, was an ordinary citizen who simply delivered some brief remarks to members of Congress. For her obvious crime, the right-wing media, and most notably Rush Limbaugh, declared war on a woman who hadn't ever appeared on cable news or talk radio or even maintained a blog. Easy, then, for the far right to draw blood by means of overwhelming the so-called enemy with the full force of right-wing radio and television. How can anyone new to the scene, irrespective of age, race, or gender, expect to fight back against a trained and moneyed right-wing attack machine? Limbaugh and others know this, so to them... It's an easily winnable fight. Meanwhile, there's Glenn Beck. When he used to host the 5 p.m. slot on the Fox News Channel, he once outed an Islamic private school in Northern Virginia when the school's sole newsworthy trespass was that an application to expand its campus was approved by the local zoning board. But Beck went on an extended googly-eyed sarcasmo rant, lots of maybe it's just me, but about the school being a de facto training camp for would-be terrorists, and even evoked 9-11 imagery, collapsed buildings and the like, in the process. We're talking about a grade school where large groups of children go for seven hours a day. Really smart. Beck outed a school for terrorists on a show that was viewed by loyal conspiracy wackaloons during a time when anti-terrorist fear-mongering and militant anti-Muslim hatred was at an all-time high. Worse, the school is full of children who then became potential targets, all because the school's zoning application was approved. Rewind to 2009 during the health care reform debate when an 11-year-old girl asked President Obama a question during a town hall meeting about the mean things she observed on various protest signs outside. Michelle Malkin and other conservatives swooped into action, investigating and exposing the girl and her parents for being alleged Obama bots. For whatever reason, this topic always circles back to Malkin. The far-right blogger wasn't the first to stalk and attack children, but she certainly popularized it during the Bush era debate over expanding the S-chip program. You might recall how Malkin famously stalked a 12-year-old accident survivor named Graham Frost after he appeared in a commercial supporting S-chip, the Children's Health Insurance Program. The list goes on and on and on. WorldNet Daily attacked a high school play. Anti-choice activists targeted the child of a landlord who rents space to a women's clinic. Limbaugh once again attacked a 13-year-old boy and called him a Nazi stormtrooper. The entire right-wing media kraken was released on 11-year-old Marcellus Owens after he attended the Affordable Care Act signing ceremony. I won't even get into the jokes about Chelsea Clinton during the 1990s. And they engage in these tactics without shame or apology. You will not find this kind of bullying from high-profile pundits and talkers anywhere else in American politics. Why? Well, in the absence of integrity, intelligence, or empirical arguments, the last resort of a mindless posse is to target children and defenseless bystanders. We can only assume that it's because their feckless president, their policy positions, and their wafer-thin bumper sticker slogans are absolutely indefensible, so they attack those who are unable to fight back. 
The alternative is, of course, to take on capable and experienced opponents who can potentially disprove or debunk their crapola ideas. But they're too cowardly for that. Trumpers know their audience. They know the mob loves it. Think about that. Attacking children is fair game, and it's good ratings. These unserious thugs and their disgraceful tactics need to be banished from any and all debates of consequence, not just to provide safe passage for their hopefully former victims, but mainly to rebottle the sickness that's been released into the world by Trump and his people. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. It became indelibly clear this week that Russia did severely undermine the U.S. political process in 2016 in an effort that started in 2014. Special Counsel Robert Mueller got a grand jury of ordinary Americans to indict 13 Russians and three Russian organizations. Unless those Russians set foot somewhere they shouldn't outside Russia, they will never be brought to trial. But the indictments established that crimes were committed and what the crimes were. And most of all, the indictments mean the Russia thing, as Trump's described it, is not a hoax or a witch hunt or fake news. And it wasn't a Democratic excuse for losing the election. It wasn't the Chinese, as he suggested. And it wasn't, as he'd suggested, a 400-pound guy sitting on his bed. And for those who've argued that collusion isn't a crime, the indictments spell out exactly how, really, it is. So thanks to these indictments of Russians, we now know the kinds of charges that would be leveled against any American co-conspirators. The indictments do not name any Americans, although they do name persons known and unknown to the grand jury. The charge is conspiracy to defraud the United States. It's right there in the U.S. Legal Code, Title 18, Part 1, Chapter 19. The law defines such a conspiracy as impairing, obstructing, or impeding an election. The penalty for violating that law is fines, prison, or both. So Mueller's indictment of those Russians also sends a message to those unnamed persons that it might be best to cooperate with the investigators. The indictments are both legally important and a ramping up of the drama. Stay tuned. Mueller's indictments also show us how massive, how widespread, and how sophisticated was the Russian attack. They outline three specific approaches in addition to the usual espionage in which countries gather dirt on each other's leaders. With a Russian troll farm spending over a million dollars a month on its attack, those approaches were conducting a massive social media campaign to divide and mislead Americans, to disrupt the dialogue using trolls and memes. Hundreds of trolls worked day and night shifts in St. Petersburg, Russia, to cover the three major U.S. time zones. Each troll had a calendar of U.S. holidays. Their assignment was to, quote, sow social discord. Quoting the email of one of those Russian workers, I created all these pictures and posts and the Americans believed that it was written by their people, end quote. The metrics show the posts were seen and liked and sometimes reposted by millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of unsuspecting Americans. Among them, the Tennessee Republican Party, Donald Trump Jr., Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, and his son, Mike Flynn Jr., at first, the Russian trolls focused on presidential hopefuls Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, presumably to knock Trump's Republican competition out of the running. The Russian effort then turned to disparaging Clinton and campaigning for Trump 
and Bernie Sanders. Angry about the American sanctions and still angry about Clinton calling out his sketchy election victory, Vladimir Putin was for anyone but Clinton. But the indictment makes clear that Trump was Putin's favorite. The Russians bought social media ads, including Hillary for prison, and Donald wants to defeat terrorism, Hillary wants to sponsor it. We learn just how deeply the Russians have claws in both Facebook and Twitter, and how those platforms were used as weapons against the American people. We learn from the indictments that the Russians bought stolen identities from Americans to pose as real Americans online. Names, addresses, social security numbers, and birth dates. We learn Russia not only planned public anti-Clinton rallies and enlisted people online to attend, it paid some Americans to appear at those rallies and to carry very specifically worded signs. One American was paid to costume as Clinton in a prison uniform for a rally in Florida. Another American was paid to build a cage on a flatbed truck so an actress could appear on it as Clinton in a prison uniform, all at the time that Trump and his supporters were chanting, lock her up. And we learn in Mueller's indictments that Russia had operatives in key states across the country doing research to help the cyber attack target the districts using the right hot-button words. We also learned that right after the election, Russia continued its criminal mischief, using social media again to stage public rallies in New York, one pro-Trump, the other anti. And that's just one example, a number of similar staged rallies also. The trolling continues today in the heat of the gun debate. One hour after the news broke about the Florida school shooting, Twitter accounts connected to Russia released hundreds of posts to widen the political gap on the subject of guns. They were posted by bots with the hashtags NRA and gun control now, the two sides, and they were again spreading disinformation. It was more Russian propaganda, just as the bots had tweeted the hashtags stand for our anthem and its opposite, take a knee, just as they tweeted release the memo each time to increase America's frustration and Americans' anger. Taking both sides and capitalizing on that by taking those sides to extremes, firing up those on the far right and those on the far left. And thanks to the inaction of our leaders, nearly a year and a half after the election, Russia is still at it. Mueller's indictments are backed up by, among other evidence, emails between the Russians named in those indictments. What the grand jury charges do not do is allege whether the Russian interference threw the election to Trump. While it may not be technically provable either way, the election was close enough that Russian interference might have made the difference. The indictments also don't tie anyone in Trump world to the Russian attack, but all indications are that's where this is heading. In the meantime, Trump's own national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, says the evidence in Mueller's indictments that Russia seriously messed with the 2016 election, quote, is now really incontrovertible, which contradicts his boss's claim of fake news. One American was also indicted by Mueller, a 26-year-old California man who admits he stole the identities of Americans and sold them online. He has pleaded guilty with an explanation that he did not know the buyers were Russian. Ricky Pinedo is now also a witness for the prosecution, agreeing to cooperate with the Mueller investigation. The Russians used the identities they bought from Ricky to open 14 PayPal accounts so those accounts could be used to buy ads on social media posing as Americans. The heat 
got turned up twice by Mueller in the past week on former Trump campaign advisor Paul Manafort. First, Mueller threatened Manafort with more charges, saying he's found evidence of additional crimes that were not included in the original charges. Specifically, the new charges are bank fraud, now on top of the charges of money laundering and failing to register as a foreign agent. Manafort remains under house arrest, confined mostly to his home on a $10 million bail package. But the Mueller team says it also has evidence Manafort's offering in that bond assets he doesn't have. They're accusing Manafort of trying to defraud the court. Manafort's lawyers, who've been working to ease the bail restrictions on their client, have no comment on this development or about the other thing that turned up the heat for them. Two days later, Manafort learned that his former business partner and second-in-command in running the Trump campaign has now flipped to cooperate with the Mueller probe. Rick Gates, who's also facing charges, has agreed to plead guilty to fraud to repay his illegally gotten money and to testify against his longtime partner and boss, Paul Manafort, in exchange for a dramatically shorter prison sentence, 18 months instead of five years. Now, a lawyer once recommended by Manafort to his Russian-connected clients in Ukraine has pleaded guilty after yet another charge from Robert Mueller. This London attorney, the son-in-law of one of the wealthiest men in Russia, now admits he lied about an email he didn't turn over to the special counsel's investigation and about his conversations with Rick Gates. So, Gates' former friend Paul Manafort now has two choices. Come clean and hope for the best, or keep fighting and go down hard. Manafort's trial is expected to start in September or October. Trump Chief of Staff John Kelly had been preparing to speak with reporters on Wednesday of last week. He would have been pummeled with questions about White House security screening and what Kelly knew and when about alleged wife-beater and former Trump Secretary Rob Porter. But Kelly was spared that grilling with the breaking news from Florida about the latest deadly gun violence. Instead, Kelly more quietly this Monday approved changes in the White House security clearance procedures. Kelly did this under pressure after the FBI had contradicted the White House version of who knew what and when. In his written order, Kelly admits his own mistakes, but puts it on the FBI and the Justice Department to hand-deliver their updates from now on, if it's super important. Also to give a verbal briefing to White House counsel Don McGahn, who had also failed to act on updates about Rob Porter that had been written down. And Kelly's five-page memo says that starting Friday, that's tomorrow, starting Friday, White House staff with only interim security clearance will be stripped of that privilege and banned from seeing classified documents. Many of them will be let go. And if they got their interim clearances before June 1st, 2017, they have to go. The president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is one of those, reading the president's daily brief that Trump avoids and seeing other closely guarded national secrets. Kushner, one of the best people chosen by Trump, is by his father-in-law's declaration in charge of Middle East peace and yet cannot get a security clearance from the FBI. Unless his father-in-law gives him one and a president has the power to grant security clearances, which may be why John Kelly is now saying that Jared will stay, that Jared's job won't change, and that Jared will have a security clearance. There are 130 people working in this White House with either no security clearance or interim clearance. Under orders from John Kelly, are they all out of jobs? Or will they get presidential clearance also? 
And are there enough people left in the White House who got security clearance to keep it running? Kushner's long-range future, however, may be in the hands of special counsel Robert Mueller. We now know Mueller is looking into not just Kushner's contact with Russians, but for lobbying foreign investors to back a shaky real estate deal involving Kushner's own company. While Kushner was reportedly making foreign contacts on behalf of the incoming Trump administration, he allegedly spent at least some of that time looking for money to back his company's multi-million dollar real estate debacle on Fifth Avenue in New York. Kushner's building at 666 Fifth Avenue in Manhattan will go into foreclosure next year without nearly $2 billion. Kushner told Congress he'd been in touch with over 50 people from more than 15 countries. Special Counsel Mueller is said to be looking into whether any of those were invited to be investors. Mueller is reportedly also interested in Kushner's leadership in the Trump campaign's data analytics operation, his relationship with the Russians, and his relationship with Mike Flynn. Jared Kushner is a prime target in the Mueller probe. Mueller also wants to know more about the meeting Kushner had with Chinese investors during the transition. A week after the election, Kushner met with executives from a Chinese conglomerate that sells insurance and also, by the way, owns New York's Waldorf Astoria Hotel. National security protocol requires Kushner to be accompanied by a knowledgeable government official to watch for foreign trickery to keep the government's emissary from being compromised. Kushner, who was desperate for that $1.8 billion, met with the Chinese investors alone and in private. There is evidence Kushner is already compromised by the Chinese as a result of that meeting. U.S. intelligence is kept just as busy these days keeping an eye on China as it is watching Russia. Mueller is now looking into that meeting between Kushner and the Chinese money men who just happened to also own property in Manhattan. Mueller also wants to know about Kushner's meeting with an investor in Qatar in the Middle East. The topic? 666 Fifth Avenue in New York City. There's also the meeting between Kushner and the head of a Russian bank, which Kushner says was strictly about official U.S. government stuff. And all of this with just an interim security clearance that gave Kushner access to the nation's top secrets, a security clearance he will never get for reasons we do not yet know officially, although there is enough evidence to make educated guesses. And those without clearance are to be banned from seeing classified data starting tomorrow, if they're not the president's son-in-law. Mentioned earlier is Trump's failure to address Russian interference, part of his odd approach to global politics from Korea to NATO to Russia. The part about not standing up to Russia worries foreign leaders the most. They had always counted on the U.S. to do precisely that. Now they're nervous. It is the job of Trump's foreign policy officials then to try to ease those fears with the message, pay no attention to the man behind the tweets. They're telling foreign officials that the U.S. is still strongly committed to its allies, that it is furious about Russian election interference, and that it isn't thinking about bombing North Korea. And the nation's foreign policy officials found themselves having to repeat that message again this past weekend at a gathering of European foreign policy officials. There is no doubt about the enthusiasm of Democratic voters as we head toward the 2018 midterm elections, but... Can that enthusiasm overcome Republican dollars? Quoting the Washington Post, the Democratic National Committee entered 2018 with $6.5 million in the bank, but owing nearly as much. In comparison, 
The RNC started the year with $39 million and no debt. The Post reports that the Republican Party is raising money at twice the pace of the DNC, mostly thanks to small donors who support Trump. Still, the Dems keep winning special elections. In Kentucky this week, they flipped the state seat from red to blue in a district where Trump had won by a 50% margin. Trump didn't win with 50% of the vote in that Kentucky district. He won with 50% more votes than Clinton. But the Democrat this week beat the Republican for this state House seat by 36 points, which is quite a flip. And it's another female candidate, a former teacher and school principal. Last week, a Democratic woman flipped a district in Florida. The Kentucky race brings to 37 the number of state seats the Democrats have flipped since Trump took office, more than half of them in districts that were carried by Trump. One state north from Kentucky and Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court had struck down the voting district map drawn by Republicans for being grotesquely partisan. It ordered Pennsylvania's Republican majority in the state's House and Senate to redraw the map, but this time more fairly. But the Republicans refused. So the state Supreme Court redrew the map for them to make it more fair. Republicans hate the new map, and Trump has now urged them to go back to the Supreme Court to argue for the old one. Trump tweeted, don't let the Dems take elections away from you so that they can raise taxes and waste money. Pennsylvania is a sensitive topic for Trump since he was the first Republican presidential candidate to win that state in 28 years. He liked the old map. Analysts say the new map gives Pennsylvania Democrats a big boost in a year that's already forecasting a blue wave. Democrats say the map that's been drawn by the state Supreme Court is even better for Democrats than the one the Democrats had proposed. Because it had to file a tax return, we finally know a little about the record amount of money the Trump inaugural committee handled. Mostly through big corporate donors, the committee raised a record-setting $107 million for that celebration, more than twice the money raised for Obama's inauguration, which was much bigger in both size and the magnitude of its celebrities. It was clear that Trump's committee had tens of millions of dollars left over, while questions swirled about where that extra money would go. The committee promised the excess would go to charity, and $5 million of it did. But the biggest payment, $26 million, went to an event planning firm launched by one of the first ladies' advisors. That firm came into existence six weeks before the inauguration under the leadership of a longtime friend of Melania's, now advisor Stephanie Winston Wolkoff. Wolkoff had experience in high society galas, but never a big public event until this one for $26 million. $5 million for more traditional charities. It was a week ago today that the Senate voted down not one, not two, not three, but four measures to settle the Dreamer issue with the deadline now just 10 days away. The public overwhelmingly agrees that immigrants brought here as children should stay, but a Trump executive order stops renewing their papers on March 5th. Trump continues to hold the Dreamers hostage until he gets his border wall, and unless he stops doing that, there will never be a compromise in Congress on DACA. A few lawmakers on both sides in Congress are able to agree on various compromises, but the Trump White House condemned the bipartisan solutions as, quote, dangerous policy that will harm the nation. 
On the same day, those four DACA proposals went down to defeat. A federal appeals court upheld another court's decision to freeze Trump's so-called travel ban. The court saying the ban's probably unconstitutional since it targets Muslims. The U.S. Supreme Court will make the final call. The guy who took your net neutrality may be in hot water. Black Panther blows up the box office and panties on a plane. In the third and final segment, up next. Listening is the new reading. And Audible.com is your best online audio bookstore with the biggest selection of digital audiobooks. Bestsellers like Fire and Fury, Big Little Lies, Hidden Figures, and Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. You don't even need an internet connection to listen. You can listen anywhere. There are no interruptions. Audible books are ad-free, and you won't lose your place even if you switch devices. There's no equipment to buy. Just download the free app. Because Audible.com is an Amazon company, you can count on privacy, security, and satisfaction. You can sign on securely with your Amazon account. And if you don't like a book, you can exchange it for another free. As a member, you'll get a credit each month for a free book, any book, regardless of price, and exclusive to members' discounts of 30%. Membership is just $14.95 a month, a library for about what you'd pay for one book. And you can cancel anytime and keep the books you've collected. Even if you shop Amazon elsewhere, this podcast gets a little commission if you join Audible through the link at buzzburbank.com. Just click the Audible link on my webpage or the Amazon button just below the list of my recent shows. Thank you for choosing Audible through me and for supporting this free news through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The man who took away your net neutrality may be in trouble. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is under investigation for his ties to Sinclair Broadcasting. Sinclair owns a huge chain of TV stations across the country, a virtual network with the goal of being like Fox News, only more so. At the request of Congressman Elijah Cummings, the FCC's Inspector General is investigating because something Pai did looks fishy. Trump's FCC chair pushed for loosening ownership rules clearing the way for Sinclair to buy the Tribune Media Company, which owns even more TV stations. Sinclair is now forcing its local stations to carry its ultra-conservative stories and commentaries. Even after a rain of gunfire, not all 17 of the wounded at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High had to die. The same is true of kids shot at Sandy Hook. The American College of Surgeons says some of the wounded could have been saved if people knew how to stop the bleeding while the school's on lockdown. Uncontrolled blood loss can mean death in 5 to 10 minutes without the correct application of pressure or a tourniquet. These doctors are recommending that every classroom in America have a stop-the-bleed kit, complete with gloves, gauze, bandages, tape, compression bandages, tourniquets, and a marker to label for doctors the time the tourniquet was applied. But knowledge is the most important tool. Quoting one surgeon, even without a kit, you can stop bleeding. The Red Cross has more information. The surgeons determined that lives could have been saved by studying the deaths at Sandy Hook. So it launched its Stop the Bleed program six years ago to get doctors, nurses, paramedics, EMTs, and others to train teachers in this kind of first aid. Who knew that teachers might one day need such training? Students in Florida were dialing 911 during and after the school gun massacre. 911 turned 50 years old this week. 
911 was invented by the president of a small rural phone company in an Alabama town called Haleyville. In the beginning, it was just a bright red phone at the police station with a three-digit phone number. The first 911 system went in before the one ordered up by the Federal Trade Commission. The order went to AT&T, but 50 years ago, AT&T wasn't the only phone company. The owner of this little independent phone company in Haleyville was unhappy that small phone companies had been left out, so he got his 911 up and running before AT&T. Alaska was next in 1968. Since 1973, 911's been used across the country and in many parts of the world, or some equivalent thereof. Last fall, Alabama launched a new internet protocol-based 911 network, and the very first call, the test call, was made in Haleyville, Alabama, where it all started 50 years ago. If there's more traffic in your neighborhood these days, it might be the GPS navigation. One billion of us use Waze, Google Maps, Apple Maps, or MapQuest to give us the best routes from point A to point B. As the apps have gotten smarter, those routes often cut through your development or down your street. Leonia, New Jersey has just passed an ordinance to fine up to $200 people driving through their town as a shortcut. Quoting one Leonia resident, they should stay on the highway. The mayor of Leonia says as more towns do what this town has done, the navigation apps will begin to reroute their customers back to the main roads. Google says its algorithm is likely to simply reroute drivers through some other neighborhood instead. Waze defends its method, saying it's reducing congestion by taking customers on a road less traveled. And Waze says congestion in Boston was cut by nearly 20% when Boston adopted Waze technology to synchronize its traffic signals. Even your pets have had to endure a bad news week. Four pet food companies recalled some of their products after the feds got complaints about salmonella poisoning. The FDA says it's investigating Darwin's Natural and Zoologics pet foods made by a Washington state company called Arrow Reliance. One customer's dog reportedly had diarrhea attacks for nine straight months before the salmonella was discovered in follow-up tests. Also recalled, beefy munchies from Smokehouse, the 7-inch bully sticks from Red Barn, and the ground turkey pet food from Minnesota's Raws for Paws, all for possible salmonella contamination. Also recalled, for an even more disturbing reason, foods labeled as Gravy Train, Kibbles and Bits, Skippy, and Old Roy. They're all made by Big Heart Pet Foods, a division of Smucker. A Washington, D.C. TV station's newsroom hired a testing firm and found that 60% of the 15 cans of gravy train it tested contained traces of pentobarbital. Pentobarbital is a euthanasia drug. The city of Brotherly Weed, marijuana possession, has effectively made it legal to possess a personal supply of marijuana in Philadelphia. District Attorney Larry Krasner has told police he will not prosecute anyone they arrest for simple possession. And he's dropped the charges in 51 cases, saying taxpayers' money is better spent elsewhere. Quoting Larry, I felt it was the right thing to do. We could use these resources to solve homicides. D.A. Krasner is also suing 10 pharmaceutical companies for creating Philadelphia's opioid crisis. And not surprisingly, Berkeley, California has become a weed sanctuary city. 
Their new law prohibits local police from cooperating with the feds in their enforcement of marijuana prohibition. The law provides at least some legal protection for the city's users and its sellers. The marijuana industry now generates a billion dollars in tax revenue a year for California, not counting the $3 million it's generated for the city of Berkeley. The mayor says the new sanctuary law is a good way to balance the public safety and, quote, resisting the Trump administration. Trump's attorney general has ordered a crackdown on marijuana and its users, even in states that have declared it legal. When I was a kid, Billy Graham was the preacher whose rallies would preempt Batman or some other favorite TV show. As I approached draft age during Vietnam, Graham was a friend and counselor to President Richard Nixon. As it turns out, Billy Graham hated as a kid going to church until he turned about 15 and saw his first traveling evangelist. And that's what he became, as well as a spiritual counselor to not just Nixon, but a dozen U.S. presidents, including Barack Obama. It was also Graham who met with the president of Iraq in 1990 to convince him to pull his troops out of neighboring Kuwait to prevent all-out war in the heart of the Middle East. Two years later, Graham met with the then-president of North Korea to try to make peace between it and the U.S. It's estimated Graham preached to about 215 million people in 185 countries around the world. He wrote nearly three dozen books, most of them bestsellers. Graham lost much favor in 1983 when he speculated that AIDS might be God's punishment for human sins. He later apologized for those remarks, saying they were wrong and cruel. Billy Graham died at his home in North Carolina this week at the age of 99. Movie theaters attracted more people than churches this week. Black Panther opened with the fifth biggest opening weekend of all time, $218 million in ticket sales in the U.S. and Canada. And the $361 million it made worldwide will more than pay for the movie's production. Black Panther cost about $200 million to make, but brought in more than expected in its first weekend in theaters. Moviegoers give it an A+. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a freshness rating of 97%. The less acclaimed Fifty Shades sequel was third this week, right after Peter Rabbit. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. It feels as though the world has somehow slipped off its axis to hear that KFC ran out of chicken In Great Britain, most of the American fried chicken joints have been closed all week after the unthinkable running out of chicken. The British KFCs had just signed a new delivery contract, but the chickens never showed up. Signs on the windows of hundreds of British KFCs read, We'll be back at the fryers as soon as we can. The company issued a statement saying the chicken crossed the road, just not to our restaurants. Now that's a lobster. Unless you are a marine biologist or a lobster trapper, you probably didn't notice that the lobster in your emoji library is missing two legs. The Unicode Consortium is not a comic book hero's hideaway. It's a governing body that sets the standard for emojis. It had proposed a lobster emoji that has eight legs. Actual lobsters have ten. And even as tiny as emojis can be, a lot of people did take notice. The chief emoji officer at Emojipedia says they have now added those two back legs. Quoting him, I hope to visit Maine one day and will be sure to make liberal use of the lobster emoji when I do. Say, are you the person who ordered the 100 pizzas? 
Someone in Germany has successfully ordered 100 pizzas, each of which was delivered to an attorney in Dortmund. The prankster got away with it by using dozens of restaurants over a two-week period. But the pizza joints have since wised up and are no longer taking deliveries to that address. So the prankster has moved on to currywurst and sushi. Police are investigating. And finally, panties on a plane. People have done some surprising and disturbing things on airline flights. More than just slipping out of their shoes, passengers have been seen clipping their nails and performing all manner of hygiene rituals and wardrobe changes. But ladies and gentlemen, we have a new winner. On a flight from Turkey to Moscow, a teenager managed to capture video of a woman across the aisle a few rows forward. The woman was holding a pair of panties up to the overhead air vent, apparently to dry them. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.